Good morning or good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Rumley, and you are back right here at Anchored. I'm excited for today's episode. We have Michaela Palm back for one final uh, epic edition of our series where we've walked with Michaela through, I think now this is our fourth episode, through her story as she uh, majors in geology and is interested in paleontology and a ton of other fun topics like that, where seemingly a lot of uh, secular scientists dominate this field, but we do need Christians involved in these areas. So I'm excited that Michaela will get to do that. She did get to visit Answers in Genesis as well to help mold her and equip her for that, which was fun to hear. Uh, But today we're going to interact with the issue of science. And last episode, we touched on what does the Bible have to say in terms of the creation debate. I think Michaela did a good job of presenting the biblical case for young earth creationism, not just in a persuasive way, but I think a very compelling way and gave us all a lot to think about and even equipped us to have those conversations with our fellow Christians about viewing special revelation in a consistent way that honors the Lord the way we should. But now we're going to turn our attention more to the scientific angle as I know at least for myself, I love the Bible, I went to Bible school, but I didn't sit in any geology classes or at least the same amount that Michaela sat in. So understandably, we feel there's this tension between science and scripture. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians think we're in this situation where do we choose the Bible or do we choose science? And now, Michaela, I know you have a little bit of a different understanding of that and that maybe there isn't as much tension as we perceive between the two. But I want us to start walking uh, kind of all of us through here. What exactly do we mean by evolution? You brought up terms like historical and observational science last conversation. Let's start by defining what we mean, and then we'll talk about uh, why we can be confident that the Bible is correct in terms of origins. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as I said throughout, my uh, perspective on this is, okay, as a Christian, I am looking to um, conform to the way that God acts and thinks. Okay, so how do I do that? Well, I'm going to study his word. So as I'm approaching these ideas, that is my number one authority. So to me, it's no question. Yes, I agree that the Bible and nature do agree and they tell the same story. But as far as figuring out which one is the authority, I feel like special revelation, God's word is special revelation for a reason. So that is my lens to then view, okay, what is science saying? And we do not have to um, deny what science says as Christians, you know, and I think that's where the um, historical science and observational science really, those distinctions come into play. So historical science is, you know, like the fossil record, which I know I talk about all the time. We didn't see it happen. We find fossils today, but we don't actively observe fossils being formed a lot, if at all at this point. So there's a lot of, it's kind of like going to a crime scene and seeing the scene itself. You know, unless you were a witness to the crime, you didn't see the crime happen. So there's a lot of inferencing, okay, why is this footprint here? Why is that window broken? There's those things that we see and then we're trying to explain. And so when you're looking at something and trying to explain it, you have a worldview in a worldview, you have uh, these presuppositions, these core values that you carry with you as you view the world. That's why it's called a worldview. So in interpreting historical science, 
everybody comes to the table with a worldview and presuppositions. That's just how it is. With observational science, that's more of a physics or a math or a even chemistry kind of mindset. We have measurable, repeatable things that, you know, like the laws of gravity and things like that. Those are things that you don't necessarily need a worldview to understand them. But when you have um, things more along the lines of geology and sometimes biology, kinds of things where, I mean, yes, we can observe different animals and things like that, but when we're trying to explain where they came from, we didn't see them just up here. So how do we answer that question? And so I think um, that's why I think worldview is such an important thing to talk about, because in your worldview, you know, you have presuppositions. Everybody has them. I'm not trying to make this a philosophical issue, but I think it's important to recognize in a historical science, which geology and paleontology are both can be. I mean, there are parts of, we know how fossils are formed. We know how rocks form. There's a rock cycle. The earth has different cycles that are measurable. We see those things. But there are also historical pieces to them because through these sciences, we're explaining how did the world come to be? So how do you look at that? Well, that's going to determine how you see other things too. So I think that's just something to point out and be aware of as you work through these kinds of issues for sure. Well, and that's huge because this conversation isn't as simple as believe the science, right? Or what does science say? Because when I hear the word science, I think of like talk about kind of that empirical, you can repeat it, you can observe it, you can touch it like gravity, right? We can throw a ball, see it fall boom, so gravity must be true. You'd be foolish to deny gravity. But you're making a distinction, a good one, that says, well, wait a second, when we talk about evolution, we're talking about historical science. So like that crime scene, right? People didn't see how that window was broken. So we have to look at the evidence and try to interpret things to picture and piece together what happened here since no one observed it. And frankly, we can't observe things that claim to have happened millions of years ago, right? So now, Michaela, and we'll get into more like, what does evolution mean? Because some might say, well, we do observe evolution, Mm -hmm. right? We see that there's different, you know, types of dogs. We see that there's human beings that look different and sound different. Isn't that evolution? You know, that's a very interesting thing, because I think sometimes as Christians, when we read how God created us and the world around us, we see him say, or in the scriptures it says, um, like, land animals were created according to their kinds. Okay, well, what is a kind? And there's actually a Christians who have um, chosen to focus on that study. And that's called uh, baromenology. So you're stuttering, studying, stuttering over the words, <laughs> and studying what does a kind mean. Yeah. Because that can be sometimes, well, if a kind is a species, God created species according to species. Well, that's different than saying, okay, God created the family of dogs, Canadae, according to the family. So... The family kind of classification is actually two steps above species. So, like, a Siamese cat and, like, a calico cat are two different kinds of species, but they're both cats. Okay. And that's an important distinction, because in evolution, 
Sometimes evolution is used to describe species-to-species change. Like, you know, we can specially breed dogs to have certain characteristics, but they're still dogs. And that's important to recognize because what evolution wants to say is we have species turning into more species and eventually that will lead to a different animal. But a lot of the time, what we don't realize is when we are developing different kinds of species and different kinds of things, they're actually losing genetic information. Hmm. They're not gaining genetic information. And to create a new thing out of something else, so like, we're not, we're never going to see a dog be genetically bred enough to become a cat. Hmm. Yeah. That's just not going to happen. Sure. Because you would need to gain certain features because cats are very different than dogs. That's why there's cat people and dog people. <laughs> so true. So you're not, you would need to gain certain information for a dog to become a cat. But as we've observed, like, um, a lot of, one of the examples that Answers in Genesis uses a lot to explain this is we have um, dogs, so like in the flood, mm-hmm. okay, Noah took two kinds of every animal onto the ark. And a lot of people think logistically, well, what is a kind? Is how many kinds of animals do you need on the ark, right? Well, if it's representatives from each family, mm-hmm. so we have dog representatives, we have cat representatives, that's a lot less animals. But how are those chosen? Because we see hundreds of dogs and hundreds of cats today, right? So how how is that? So yep, that's a genetics thing, actually. Okay. So one of the things that Answers in Genesis has said is, possibly, obviously, we don't want to limit God. Right. But one thing that is possible that happened was they brought medium-haired dogs. This is just an example. Because medium-haired dogs have the genetic ability to produce long hair dogs, medium hair dogs, and short hair dogs. So when there's the earth has been wiped clean and we are moving into, you know, this kind of remade earth in a way, okay, there's all these new, these ecosystems in different places in the earth, right? So as these medium hair dogs reproduce, there's going to be short haired ones, there's going to be long haired ones and medium haired ones. And they're all going to thrive in different environments. So eventually, the long-haired dogs lose the ability to have short hair because all the short-haired dogs didn't make it in the polar regions. The long-haired dogs didn't survive near the equator where it's hot. Thus, that's where we have short-haired dogs. And then medium-haired dogs are with us where the climate change or something like that. You know, so it's not that the long-haired dogs gain the ability to become long-haired. They had the ability as short-haired dogs, but lost the ability to have short hair. Okay. Okay. That- so I hope that makes enough sense. Yeah. Because it's not a gaining, it's actually a losing of information most of the time. Well, that's very interesting you bring that up, because if I was to put on my evolutionary hat, when I think of Darwin and the Galapagos Islands and everything, and I forget exactly what bird he was looking at. The but finches. It, the finches. Yeah, that each finch had a different type of beak or something, depending on what food they ate on the islands. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would look at that and say, ah, oh, since not all birds look exactly the same, mm-hmm. there must be 
evolution and then you put it on a big time scale, right? Like millions of years that then all those small changes could turn into different kinds, not just different species, but different kinds of animals. And Michaela, I love how you're pointing out that that isn't necessarily as compelling as it first seems because scripture has a category for kinds of animals. Christians recognize in scripture that we should expect different adaptations and different species Mm -hmm. within kinds, if I'm using those words correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is observational. And that is true. Yes. And it's another leap of faith to then say, well, because there can be different species of a kind that then kinds can change into a different kind of animal. And maybe I'm, I'm getting lost over my words here a little bit. But the leap from microevolution or small changes within yep. a kind is categorically different than macroevolution, as I've heard it's called, yep. which is a change of kinds, right, to a completely different animal. Right. And so maybe walk us through that a little bit, um, and then we'll maybe transition to some of your criticisms of evolution Um, Especially in terms of the lens we interpret things along those lines. Right. So I think, you know, that's why, that's just, this is just the kind word dilemma. The word kind. This is the dilemma because it's like, what is kind? You know? Um, And so that's something to keep in mind. So that's why I like to use examples of animals. So, you know, microevolution would be the representative of cats on the ark turning into um, like a calico cat versus a Siamese cat. Okay, that's microevolution. It's still a cat. All right, so then macroevolution claims that if a cat changes enough times, it could happen to be a dog. Um, that's the important distinction, I think, to just be familiar with. And it's a lot of times, I think, what's interesting is evolutionists assume, well, assume that we think as Christians, as creationists, oh, God created the animals. That's how they've always been. Sure. But if you talk to scientists who are Christians, they will tell you, no, we believe in adaptation or sometimes called microevolution. And natural selection in and of itself is not a bad thing. So natural selection is the name for um, the concept that describes why certain characteristics are better than others, depending on the environment. So back to the dog hair example. So the environment, so like the long-haired dogs are obviously going to do better in a place where it's colder. That's natural selection because the medium-haired dogs that left the ark have the genetic capability to be short hair, medium hair, or long hair. But what chooses, chooses if they're long hair, medium hair, or short hair? They're all going to be, they're going to be born with different genetic combinations. That's just how genetics works. Um, So what's going to determine what characteristic is more preferable or how are the animals going to better survive? That's natural selection. That's just an example of it. That's how I best understand it. And I think that that's reasonable. Sure. But when you tag natural selection to say, okay, natural selection can turn one species into another. I don't think that that's the case. I think natural selection is just another way to describe how animals adapt okay. to their environment. Sure. If that makes sense. That, that was actually very helpful. Okay. And, and I think to briefly summarize, a change with 
in a kind is observational and it's adaptation, microevolution, it's biblical, everyone recognize it. Macroevolution or change of kinds over time is historical right. science where we can't observe it. So there's a leap there, a worldview leap that I think we'll get into. And that's where the point of disagreement comes. So, Michaela, we're already at 16 minutes here. So let's change our, our direction here to okay. maybe the idea of, uh, very briefly, I think everyone knows um, a lot of at least secular scientists find a macroevolution a compelling narrative or worldview explanation mm-hmm. for the fossil record, for the evidence. Uh, maybe briefly speak to that and then turn your attention to why do so many Christian scientists disagree with their conclusions and just what is some of the the, the mental and intellectual um, conclusions and exercises you go through um, that would lead you to maybe to disagree with secular science. Okay, so with um, macro evolution, a lot of times when it's taught, like when I learned it in my geology class, we had to work through a section of ge- geologic time, that's what it's called. That is the time scale. That's where the millions of years come from. That's where the fossil record, it's often interpreted that way. And I've heard it described sometimes that the geologic record only exists in a textbook. You're not going to go to a place in the earth where all of the rocks are perfectly lined up enough to where you can see all the fossils that are contained everywhere. That's just, it's an idealistic thing. It looks pretty on paper. I think it looks nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there are pieces of the rock record all over the place. And so what the geologic timescale is, is the compilation of the different rock layers that exist on the earth and what exists in them as far as fossils are concerned. That's what the geologic time scale is. And geologic time, the time element comes from the dating methods used to date the rocks. I'm not going to get into that because we'll be here all day. And um, that's okay. So that's not the focus of this conversation. So macroevolution is something that when interpreted, there's a time element, right? A geologic time scale, okay? When evolutionists explain evolution, they often point to the fossil record because it's dated to be millions and millions of years old. So that is going to show us over time, ideally, how these creatures have formed from one to another. That's the thought process behind it. Um, and so then what I want to do in the next few minutes is say, okay, if I'm an evolutionist and I believe that the fossil record is going to tell me how these creatures formed from one to another, what do I need to look for? What am I as an evolutionist going to say? Oh, there's evidence of evolution. So that's kind of where I'm going to take this. I do not agree with evolution. I'm just, this is an exercise. Yeah. Um, so what should I find in the fossil record? Well, the first thing to think through for me logically is, I'm going to see, this is an example of um, dogs turning into cats, okay? So if a dog is going to turn into a fully functional cat, I need to see a transition somewhere. I'm not saying there are dog and cat transition fossils. In the, I'm not saying that. I will go to a, an actual example once I finish explaining the concept. So like I've said before, in the um, fossil record, we have seemingly simple and simple things on the bottom to more complex on the top. Um, and so there are certain components that need to evolve to become um, more complex, right? Simple to complex and addition of information. That's what we need to see. 
And so as I look through, I should be seeing lots of simple organisms evolving into complex organisms. Therefore, I should be seeing, as an evolutionist, transitionary forms that go from one step to the next step. And just the nature of the fossil record, what it is, there's erosion that comes into play. Not every single animal that has lived has been fossilized, so it's incomplete. That's just something we need to work with. As scientists, that's a fact. However, as a Christian, I do not feel like the incomplete nature of the fossil record is going to eliminate all the transition forms. Like, it's, it, my point is, there should be more transition forms in the record than what's there. There are a few controversial specimens that exist out there, but there shouldn't be the only ones there. Right. And now I don't mean to jump in here, Michaela, but you're, you're peaking my, my mind here because I love your approach to this because you're, you're, you're trying to be objective, mm-hmm. right? You're saying if I put on, since it's historical science, since no one's there to observe it, we have to have some lens, some presupposition, some worldview to piece together this evidence to come to a conclusion. And you're saying, well, if I put on my atheistic evolutionary hat, what would I expect to see, right, in this record? Yep. And you're saying it's very reasonable that within small changes over long periods of time, you should expect to find transition fossils. Yep. Um, your example, you know, from, from a dog to a cat, I know you'll actually bring up an example where you'll be able to show with clarity how interpretation comes into all of this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, fossil record's incomplete, but we do find, you know, thousands, if not millions of fossils. Yep. And it's so intriguing that out of those millions of fossils, there are really just a small handful of very controversial, very disagreed upon, quote-unquote, transitional fossils. We should find millions of these things. So that's a glaring, a glaring, uh, deafening silence in the fossil record. And one could be naive and just assume, well, due to erosion and Mm -hmm. all of this, it just happened that it was the transitional fossils that eroded away. But that would be a little bit naive. So I found that very compelling. But I'll, I'll let you go back to it. You just piqued my mind and I had to get that off my chest. No, yeah. And I think it's it's something to, just as we're hearing evolutionists speak on these things, that's an argument that I hear fairly often is, oh, well, we just don't have the amount of specimens we really need to make this the way that we want it. Like, they'll say, oh, we just don't have enough material to work with. There's not enough there. Is there, though? <laughs> that's just my personal struggle with it. Um, One thing I think is interesting, when Charles Darwin wrote On the Origin of Species, he either admitted in the actual book, I'm working, trying to read through it, I have a copy at home, but just I've heard it referenced and quoted a lot, and it was either in his book or in his discussion of his theory later on, he said something that will ultimately prove me wrong is the lack of transitional forms. Like, he was recognizing... This is a huge piece, and granted, he was doing his research in the 1860s, 50s, 70s, whatever. So we're 200 years later, and he had faith in scientists that we would find more transitionary forms than I think we have. Ah. And I think that's just kind of telling to the story. And so as an evolutionist, that is something that if I can find a transitionary form, that's going to help prove this theory that I believe in. So you're actually just using Darwin's criteria himself. This yeah, isn't some yeah. creationist trying to create a 
a, a uh, standard that's unachievable or anything. Right. No, this is the man himself yeah. saying, if my theory isn't true, then there won't be transitional fossils. But he fully expected we would eventually find them. Yep. And 200 years later, we haven't really made much progress in that area. Yeah, and I think that's just interesting. And I think it's that desperation that can lead to, um, like, this example here that I'm going to share. Because I know that we're probably a little bit longer in than we anticipated. So I <laughs> Sure, wanna, we'll do I a wanna... few more minutes. Go okay. for it. So this example I'm going to share is about um, whale evolution. And it was actually brought to my attention by another student from PCS. And um, she and I are going to the same institution and we have very similar majors. She's a biology major and I'm a geology major. So we take a lot of the same classes as we take just different things. And she brought to my attention something that was taught in her textbook about whale evolution. And they had a diagram and this particular animal called Pachycetus is just kind of a common name for it. Um, so basically, Pachycetus in the evolutionist worldview is the turning point to where we see amphibians turn into whales. That's kind of where it's it's placed in the story. And so um, I actually watched a video on this that Answers in Genesis did, and they talk about, okay, so Pachycetus is said to be a transition from amphibians to whales. Whales are mammals. That's something to keep in mind. So they have mammalian characteristics, not amphibian characteristics. And there are a lot of really weird looking amphibians in the fossil record. Like if you are at home and you're watching, you're listening to this and you think, what in the world is Pachycetus? And you type it into Google. It's probably going to look like some really weird dog or wolf thing. It just looks really weird. So that's why it's hard to describe. And um, when the initial discoveries of Pachycetus were found, and I don't remember when it was, but it was it was a little while ago. Um, they were, um, what's cool is when scientists discover new pieces of whatever it is, they also have artists that work with them to help put in illustration, okay, this is the cool new animal that this scientist just found. A lot of times, or if the scientists are really gifted, then they'll draw it themselves. Um, so when Pachycetus was discovered, there were these drawings published along with it um, that depicted it in a certain way with whether it be the skull or the legs or whatever that may be. But the original discovery of Pachycetus was three or four different bones in the skull. But this drawing that was made for it was the entire body. So how scientifically accurate can that be if we're going to say this is a transition? I'm sure they've found more pieces of it since then. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to declare this a transition, I feel like we'd want to nail some of those things down beforehand to make it rock solid. From and This is from an opposing view. Yeah. But if you're thinking, okay, Charles Darwin has said transition forms are going to be you know, that's the, the ticket to finding evolution. So if we're coming at it with this desperation of, I know this is out there, it must be true. Oh, look, I found it. You're almost going to self-fulfill your own prophecy. And so I think that's an example of um, how that happened. And there is a journal called The Nature. It's like a magazine journal for publishing um, think different things like this, finding pachycetus, finding fossils. 
things in biology. That's one of the most prestigious, well-known publishers in the scientific community. And this was a publication made in, um, in England at the time about Pachycetus. And they said it was more amphibian than it was whale-like. And so if we remember, amphibians are not whales. Hmm. Whales are not amphibians. So if one of the most prestigious journals, magazines, whatever, in the scientific community is saying Pachycetus, this hypothetical transitionary form, is more amphibian than it is whale-like 30, 40 years ago, why is it still being taught in textbook like last year? Wow, that is, huh, that blows my mind because, you know, and I remember going to a public high school, seeing pictures in my science textbook of evolution, and it's so easy just to trust the textbook, right? And they show, right. here's a transitional species, here's a transition fossil, and they, right. you know, paint out this, you know, color, detailed picture of an animal, and then you find out they, at least to our knowledge in the initial drawings, they took a little creative license and found three pieces of pop, probably its skull. And from that, they determined what it should look like. And it's like, wow, that's not necessarily an entire fossil of an entire transitional species. Right. I would picture based off the picture in my textbook. So it's a little right. bit disingenuous. Uh, but when you have that bias to want to find those things, um, it makes sense that you'll take a little creative license to ensure you do find those right. things. And I think, you know, as a scientific community, we want to grow and we want to improve on our research. And so I think for me, the real desperation comes in when we've someone has declared and has published, hey, this is really not what we think it is or was. And I'm sure we found more Pachycetus, you know, specimens other than just those skull pieces. That was a while ago, so I'm sure there have been more as Pachycetus is more valuable as it's deemed a transitionary form. I think for me, the desperation comes in when it's been declared, hey, this is an amphibian, this is not a whale, but we're still teaching it. Oh, uh, yeah. I think for me, that's really where it comes through. Sure. Because, you know, we've all made mistakes in initial discoveries, so like, I want to extend some grace to that, but I think for me that's really where it hits home. Absolutely. And, and anything of that nature shouldn't be in a textbook that's training young people. I fully agree with that. And now, McKenna, we're already here at 30 minutes. So we're going to have to wrap things up. And I want to very briefly just uh, because on one hand, we talked about how the lens, the worldview, the presupposition will certainly impact the conclusions you come to yep. since uh, creation scientists and evolutionary scientists are all using the same rocks, the same fossils, the same evidence just using different presuppositions in order to interpret what happened. And since it is a historical science, right. it requires interpretation in a presuppositional worldview manner. Last conversation, we chatted about how scripture seems pretty clear in answering the origins question. So when equipped with the special lens of revelate or the lens of special revelation, you can then interpret the fossil record in a way that makes much more sense and is more consistent with itself than our atheistic evolutionary counterparts. But I guess I want to end with just, is there anything, and I know we didn't really talk about this before we started to record, so I'm putting you on the spot, but just I'd love to end with just a few maybe observations you've made that have encouraged you that maybe creationism is true. And I'll, I'll just kind of start this very briefly by saying when I heard, for example, that they found um, 
some blood cells on mm. fossils. Yeah. You know, it's like, whoa, those can't last millions of years. Yeah. Like, it's hard to not see that and not come, or it's hard to see that, I should say, and not come to the conclusion that that was just maybe a few thousand years ago, mm-hmm. not millions of years ago. Right. So maybe reflect on the, the blood cells discovery, or is there anything else that you would just love to share that said this encouraged you that we have come to the right conclusions? Yeah, I think that's a big one for me. When I was first starting on this journey, um, learning about Dr. Mary Schweitzer and her finding the blood cells inside this particular, I don't remember what kind of dinosaur she was studying at the time. Um, she got a lot of scrutiny for that and a lot of criticism because I think that really raises a question. And she, to my knowledge, is not a Christian at this time. She was not operating under a Christian organization um, that I know of. Um And yet at the same time, there's this question of, we realize these things decompose and decay. So how are we fighting them? You know, and she actually went and re-evaluated herself after this criticism because there was the contamination issues that were claimed. Because I feel like that's kind of like, oh, well, that can't be true because contamination. Right. We've decided it's impossible. So we, Right, you know, and I think that's where um, worldview can be a little bit tedious sometimes is because our worldview is going to shape how we interpret things. So from an evolutionary perspective, if I hear, oh, blood cells in a dinosaur bone, that's really weird. That seems contradictory to them having been fossilized millions of years ago. Um, Just kind of an interesting thought that could challenge what I believe. So maybe I come off a little defensively, but she has gone back since then and a few years later published republished her findings and was more sure of herself than she was before. And we found more of these specimens than we thought we would after having the eyes to see this happens all the time. And I think another story that I love to tell is, um, I can't remember his, um, Leonardo, the dinosaur mummy. I watch a documentary on it, uh, briefly here and it talks all about this, um, certain kind of dinosaur where they found a lot of his, organ systems, still fairly intact. They actually scanned him with CT scanning to not invasively, like, ruin the specimen. But they had determined the only way, like, they could track through his intestinal digestive system. Wow. Um, That's how well-preserved he was. And there were skin impressions, like, in the dirt and the rock that was preserved there. I mean, just ridiculously awesome, along with The different skeleton and things that were, I mean, it's all there, but it's also close to where it would have been had he been alive. Mm. So I think that's sometimes something we don't think about. We don't just find skeletons laid out perfectly. A lot of times they're not in their correct orientation. Mm. And so to find bones, let alone in the correct orientation, that's a big deal. But to find organ systems and bones together in their orientation, that's a huge deal. Um, And so when the people who had discovered this actually had said the only way this could have been fossilized is rapid burial in a flood. <laughs> I think I've heard of that somewhere before. That to me just kind of points to, okay, yeah. even they're willing to recognize that this was buried in a flood. Mm-hmm. And if I could count how many times I've heard someone say this was buried in a flood, this was rapid burial, this was something... I think it's just little pieces of encouragement along the way that, yes, creationism is true. Because how many local isolated (laughs) events am I going to believe in before I believe in the fact that my God sent a flood to wipe the earth clean? Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's just, that's something that I think about. Well, that's an encouragement to me. And I love just kind of looping back as we conclude here. You approach this conversation by saying, well, if I put on my evolutionary uh, assumptions and lens, I would expect to see this. The transitional fossils were one of them, and we don't see it. But of course, if we put on our biblical lens, what should we expect to see, especially if we assume a global flood, especially if we assume you know, death after the fall, things of that nature. Well, if there was a global flood, we'd expect to see a whole lot of fossils because that rapid burial would create fossils. We'd expect to probably find some blood cells, some tissue, because it's not millions. It's just a few thousand years. And oddly enough, that's exactly what we find. Not to mention, we'd expect to find simpler organisms at the bottom and more complex at the top. So I hope uh, you've been encouraged by this conversation, listener. I know I have, as we've brought Michaela in. And Michaela, I'm so glad you're able to join us for this four episode mega series. um, As this was a blast to hear what our alumni are doing. And I just hope you're impressed to see how uh, the Lord used PCS and Christian education help equip and form Michaela and how now she's going into a area that we need Christians to be in. And she's already pouring back uh, to her, her peers in the school that poured so much into her. So Michaela, thank you so much for your time. I had a blast. We'll have to do it yes, again. Thank you. Absolutely. Oh, my pleasure. And listener, thank you for joining us. We have kept you way too long, but I think it was worth every second. So God bless. And I'll see you next time right here on Anchor.